Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us at Summit Drive. If, uh, if you're new or a guest here, welcome. My name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And, you know, there's this, um, it's kind of image, this picture that we often get when we, when we think about spirituality um, that's often presented sort of in this sense of, uh, you've probably seen it before, it's just this kind of lone person with their arms outstretched in some sort of beautiful outdoor uh, scenario. Now, um, I wanted to test my hypothesis. Is that generally what people think of when they try to picture spirituality? And so I, I googled just spirituality images, safe search on, of course. And, um, and I was scrolling through, and just like this next picture that's coming up, same kind of thing. It was like a hundred pictures of a single person praying maybe reading a text, but most of it was just this kind of solitary, lone person with a beautiful surrounding. Um, there was one actually on like romance and spirituality. It was two people riding a bike together. So was, I guess that was two people. Um, but then it took me about 100 pictures before finally there was one that sort of pictured spirituality as more than just a lone individual. And it happened to be like a pre-modern, ancient uh, Christian icon. And so I thought, well, maybe Christianity, like if I Googled like Christian spirituality, that might make a difference. Maybe you'd see something different. No, but same thing, just a whole bunch of like individual people, except for a few more uh, like book titles and crosses. And again, it was until, until I bumped into ancient uh, pre-modern Christian icons that you began to see more than one person in the frame. And now being alone with Jesus, being alone with God is great. In fact, Jesus models that. He takes time away from the crowds to just be with his father in prayer. And so I'm not trying to say that that is not a good thing. It really is. But the point being, it took legitimate effort for me to just find a reference to Christian spirituality that didn't look, well, basically just like a solitary individual. And I think this speaks to our cultural moment. and something we're going to unpack a little bit today and actually throughout this series. Um, this emphasis on the individual, it's not always easy for us to see or to think about. Um, the novelist David Foster Wallace, he tells a story in one of his uh, speeches that he's famous for. And he, and, he, and he begins like this. He says, there are these two uh, young fish and they're swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the opposite way who nods them and says, morning, boys. How's the water? Because that's how fish speak. <laughs> and, the, and the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and goes, what on earth is water? Wallace concludes like this. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. And one of those obvious and important realities, and that may even be hard to talk about at times, is the deep and sometimes damaging impact that individualism has had, not only on Western culture as a whole, but even on the Christian conception of salvation and what it means to be the church, to be the people of God. So what do I mean when I say individualism? First, here's what I don't mean. Um, the notion of having a deeply personal faith that has always been significant within Christianity. 
The fact that Jesus speaks very personally. There's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment and she's healed. And, and he, what does Jesus say? He turns to her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. This is a very tender and caring word from Jesus to this one person. So he cares about you as an individual. He cares about each of us deeply. But notice that word daughter. That's relational language, isn't it? That puts her in connection to other people. So even when Jesus is dealing with people in a very personal, individual way, it's never disconnected from the rest of the web of society. Each person matters to God. And that's why Paul can say of Jesus, he could say, he loved me and gave himself up for me. And each one of us can make the same claim that Paul does. If we've put our trust in Jesus, then you can say, he loves me. Isn't that beautiful? That Christianity does care about how the individual does connect to God. So that's, that's really important to see. All of that to say is that the uniqueness and worth of each person matters deeply to God. But individualism is actually a different thing. And it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. Uh, The core concept, here's like a really basic crash course that lacks a ton of nuance, but I'm going to tell you anyways. The basic idea of individualism really uh, gains traction and becomes a part of like the core um, way that we functioned as a people in Western society. So Northern Europe and um, North America in particular in the modern era. And modern doesn't mean like, oh yeah, like three years ago. Modern means, well, beginning in the 1600s. The modern, uh, the modern era begins in the 17th century, the 1600s. And here we see people, there's a shift that begins to happen. Before this time, people primarily understood what it meant to be a person through your relationships with other people. That's how, that's how you located who you were and where you were. But beginning at this time, that began to shift away from thinking of yourself in in terms of community and responsibility to others to an emphasis on the individual, on personal fulfillment, personal happiness, and personal freedom. Here's how the Cambridge um, Dictionary defines individualism. It says, it's the idea that freedom of thought and action for each person is the, and this is the key, most important quality of a society rather than shared effort and responsibility. Said differently, um, in more and more situations, I begins to replace the language of we. Here's how one scholar, uh, David Bosch, puts it. He writes, the insatiable appetite for freedom to live as one pleases developed into a virtually inviolable right. Meaning, it's kind of this posture of arms crossed which says, how dare you even suggest that I can't just do whatever I want? He goes on. The self-sufficiency of the individual over social responsibilities was exalted to a sacred creed. And then he quotes one thinker that says, there are no absolutes, freedom is absolute. So you see, before we can talk about what, what does it mean when the biblical authors are writing about to share our lives together, before we can really understand how we can do that, we've got to recognize right off the bat that there is this deep undercurrent. It's just, and it's the water we swim in. 
Uh, You don't even see it. I don't even see it, but we move through it all the time. It even impacts how we think about salvation and what it means to be in the church. Now, I recognize in our church community that there are people who are coming not from Western societies. And you think, yes, of course, you understand who you are in relation to others, not just in terms of your own personal freedom. So I really am talking about Western cultures in particular here, where people from Eastern cultures or the Southern Hemisphere, this this isn't the water they grew up in. Uh, But this is something that for us who grew up in this setting, we've got to really be critical of and think through uh, carefully. Uh, Another missionary and theologian says it like this. The salvation which is promised in Christ and of which the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit is not to be conceived simply as the fulfillment of the personal spiritual history of each individual human being. To speak in this way is to depart from scripture and from a true understanding of what it is to be a person. We are fully persons only with and through others. And in Christ, we know that our personal history is so rooted in Christ. Salvation, he is saying, and we'll look at this more in a minute, uh, is not just a transaction between me and God. He's saying that the whole of the picture of scripture, and we'll see this in a minute, that God gives us, God's purpose for creation is the building of community, of togetherness. Now in 1 John 4 verse 16, we read, God is love. That's a a big statement. That's a statement about the very nature of God's essence, God's being. And of course, it means that God is loving that God is the ground and source of every form of love that we see. Uh, John writes as much. He says, let us love one another, for love comes from God. If you see love in the world, God is its source, whether you recognize it or not. But it's also important for me to to point out, since far too many have taken this word, uh, which is beautiful, and it's about the nature of God, and it ends up being twisted and subverted to empty it of its true meaning. Uh, It's it's simply by running it backwards to say, okay, if God is love, then love is God. And let me tell you, that is not at all what John means. That's not what the scriptures are saying. Uh, That's not even logically true. You can't just turn a sentence around backwards and run it through and say, ah, that's what it means. In fact, that would totally depersonalize God. That would turn love, however you conceive of it, into your God. That's called idolatry. That's making a God in your own image And this scripture protects us from that kind of thinking. So we have to take it as it comes to us. This is the nature of God as God himself reveals it. See, to say God is love is fundamentally a description of the very personal nature of God. It says that God exists in community, the love relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we can put it like this. Um, was there ever a time when God wasn't love? Based on this text, you'd say, no, there was never a time where God wasn't love. Of course not. Well, in order for there to be love, there needs to be a beloved. There needs to be an other for that love to be shared with. So there has never been a time where God has been alone. God has always been the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, It's a mind-bending and mysterious reality that the scriptures simply teach that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Um, Tertullian was a pastor and thinker in the second century, and he was trying to reflect on what the scriptures really teach, what the apostles taught, what what the the whole biblical storyline reveals about God. And he says this. He's the first to use the word Trinitas, which is Latin for when we say Trinity. He's not inventing a new teaching. He's reflecting what's recorded. And he says this, God is from all eternity one, but God is not alone. God is one, but not alone. That's relational language. The preacher, Daryl Johnson, he puts it like this in his excellent book, Experiencing the Trinity. At the center of the universe is a relationship. That's the most fundamental truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community, and out of that relationship, you and I were created and redeemed, and it is for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. That's both beautiful and breathtaking, and I think to the point of our study, so true of what our hearts ultimately long for. We want connection. We want love. We want to belong, don't we? You know why? That's what you were made for. The, the God in whose image you are created is a relational God. Since we are formed by the one who is, whose very nature is love, we're created for that connection with him and others. To be part of that circle of love that has always existed. Isn't that beautiful? That's who we are. Uh, theologian Stanley Grenz speaks well of, and he points to a number of places in the Bible that teach how the storyline of the scriptures is actually shaped around the formation of community. He says this, from the, the narratives of the primordial garden, this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which opened the curtain on the biblical story, to the vision of the white-robed multitudes inhabiting the new earth with which it concludes, this is Revelation 21 and 22, The drama of scripture is directed to bringing into being. Oh, pardon me, I skipped a bit. You got it in front of you, don't you? Yeah, you do. Taken as a whole, pardon me, I missed that. Taken as a whole, the Bible asserts that God's program is directed to the bringing into being of community in the highest sense. A reconciled people living within a renewed creation and enjoying the presence of their Redeemer. Let's just pause on that for a moment. When we look at the very first pages of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, to the very last pages, we see that God and his agenda, his plan is the establishment of a community. As Grenz puts it, a reconciled people living within a renewed creation, enjoying the presence of their Redeemer. Now our question for tonight and the rest of this series is, so how does that work for us now? If, if that's who we are, if that's what God is up to, how do we live that kind of community out as we await the full, the full and final renewal of creation? I want us to begin by looking at a text. It's actually the closing words of Paul in his second letter, letter to the church in Corinth. And it provides a window for us where Paul is speaking into a setting where, where really people are wrestling. How do we live out the, and be the community of God even in a messy situation? Now, throughout the letter, Paul spends much of the ink in his pen defending his ministry to say that he's got the God-given right to actually give leadership to this group of people, which he does as an apostle and as a church leader. But then he pulls back 
And he concludes uh, with the following, and it's just as significant for us today. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greeting. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's just pause and pray before we reflect more on this. Father, I'm so thankful that you inspired your servant Paul to write this text in this way. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be moving our hearts to respond in faith and love as we read this together. In your name, amen. So I'm going to make a a number of maybe fairly obvious but significant observations about life and community that we take from this text. First, you'll notice that, that Paul speaks this blessing of the God of love and peace over these people. And then he goes on to also bless them in the threefold name of God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That just goes back to my last point that I was, I was uh, trying to point to here, is that the God who is community is reestablishing community through the grace of Jesus. That we are brought to peace through the very life of God who lays it down for you and I. So here in this text, Paul is again summarizing the goodness of the good news. The basis that we have for new life and salvation and fellowship with each other. We're connected together as a community, a fellowship, because of the great work of God. It's a grace that we don't deserve, yet is freely given to us. There's no other basis for our life together. That is it. And we are gathered as God's dearly loved children simply as we come to say, yes, I will put my trust in you, God, in what you've done through your son, Jesus. We're formed as the community of God through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No wonder Paul starts the closing section by addressing the community in this way. He could have done it so many other ways, but he says this, finally, brothers and sisters. That is, that's a profound statement. You might have heard the phrase, you know, you don't get to pick your family, which is true. Um, you all also don't get to pick this family. That we are from so many different backgrounds and experiences, and yet it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that draws us not only to God, but then binds us together. It says the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, uh, where we are now connected through what God has done. So family is the very best way to describe what God is making us. We're not a disparate group of people who just happen to choose to form a club. Not a chance. You don't choose your family, and we don't choose each other either. That's God's work of bringing us together. Now, Leroy Brown, Leroy, hey, hear that? He greets me always and wonderfully and truthfully with his amazing Jamaican accent, which I will not attempt to recreate for you by saying exactly what he did now, Brother Dave. Not Dave, not Pastor Dave, brother. And I love it because it's true. Um, And this text is teaching us how to think like that. Brother, sister, 
together. Not one above the other, brother, sister. I love it. Uh, And here's maybe the most obvious, maybe one of the most significant points we'll look at here. Uh, But we cannot possibly do what Paul is instructing in this next section or what Jesus teaches us unless we are connected to each other in a community. Think about it. How do you encourage one another? Be of one mind. Live in peace. If you're not, well, in relationship, intimately enough to, well, to do these things, to get on each other's nerves. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. It wasn't in my notes, but it's true. Intimately enough to actually practice these things. We're created for connection, created to be a connected people. Second, notice too, Paul says, brothers and sisters, rejoice. They and we have reason to celebrate. Now to rejoice is a function of rightly perceiving the glory of who God is as much as we can and what God has done for us. Through his work on the cross, the most incredible movement of love to remake us and renew us. And so to rejoice is to let our hearts glory in and respond with joy to the God who loves us and makes good on his promises, even his future promises. It's to believe God that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says not even death can do that. Romans chapter 8 is where that's found. We rejoice by rightly reading what God has done and will do. To rejoice is not to say, oh man, turn that frown upside down. You know, come on, just be a bit more positive and upbeat. That's not what rejoicing is. Thank God it's not. Because it means that even in the deepest brokenness and the the parts of my life that are the most hurt at any given moment, I can still turn and perceive whom God is and read my situation in light of the big future project that he has, the glorious future he's drawing us into, a renewed heaven and earth. And I can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. That's good news, isn't it? Now our rejoicing, it can happen in a number of ways. It really can. But one of the reasons why we join our voices together, why we spend time singing Boy, this is not just the bit before the preach, okay? I, I, and I know that there's settings where you come in and you might be singing one or two songs and then it's like a 50-minute sermon. I love the idea of a 50-minute sermon. I'm not going to do it, but you know me. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Uh, but what we do in joining our voices and hearts together actually matters. We are rejoicing. This, these songs help my heart to remember. No wonder Paul says things like this in Ephesians 5.19. Sing and make music in your hearts to God. That's the practice of rehearsing the gospel. Rejoicing requires that we rehash. Right, that's who God is. Right, that's what God has done for us. And the most beautiful sound is sometimes when I just stop singing and I listen and I listen to you and I listen to God's people gathered lifting up the name of Jesus. And it's not beautiful because everyone's on key, because let's be honest. Um, But it is beautiful. You guys sounded great, by the way. Um, It's beautiful because this is our story. This is our song. It's to praise Jesus for what he's done for us. 
And so here's my, like, what's the take home? This. Would you sing with me? And most of you do, and I love that about us. But I know it sounds like a silly question. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not a singer. And I would say, okay, just mumble the words along with us, okay? (laughs) Would you join your heart in rejoicing, even if you know it doesn't sound awesome? Even if you're struggling to believe it. You know, Jesus, there's this one place where a guy comes up, Jesus says, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes that's what we're doing when we gather to sing. We're, we're like, yes, I believe, but I have these doubts. Help me, Jesus, with my unbelief as well. And joining our voices together in song begins to take the message of the gospel that we're singing and push it down deep into our hearts. And I need it there. And that helps me rejoice all throughout the week. All right, I'm getting too long on that point. Let's look at number three. Um, third, to speak of God as the God of peace is not just to say that God gives us inner serenity, which he actually does at times. He really does. Man, he gives us a peace inside, which is beautiful and lovely. Or it's not just a sense of rest with God, like me and God, we're good. It is both those things, but it is way bigger than that too. See, Paul, who's writing these words, is a Jewish man. And as a Jewish Bible reader, a reader of the Hebrew text, he knows that the word for peace is shalom, and shalom doesn't just mean, ah, peace with God or inner rest. It means the whole of creation that's been broken apart through sin being put back together. It's relational harmony at every single level. With God, others ourselves and the rest of creation. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it like this. Just pay attention. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is our peace. Who's your peace? Sunday school answer, Jesus is our peace. He is our peace who has made the two groups. He's speaking of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. He's made the two groups into one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. Do you see what he means? Jesus who is our peace reunites us with each other. The Christian faith cannot even begin to imagine some form of spirituality that's cut apart from the rest of the people of God. And that's what makes sense of the rest of these commands. He says this, strive for full restoration. And this is a community that had a lot of divisions in it. He says, strive for full restoration. Do that kind of work. Work at peace among you. Then he goes on to say, encourage one another. Where there's, where there's a lack of courage, where someone's discouraged, come alongside of them and help them to rejoice. Point them again to Jesus and what he's done. And he says, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. For those who want what God offers through the death and resurrection of his son, in the power of the spirit, this means nothing less than us being formed into a community that reflects the image of God. It means to be of one heart and one mind. And this being of one mind, that might sound scary to us. It doesn't mean you can't have your own thoughts. But it's to say this, let the pattern of the gospel, the way of thinking that is God-soaked and Christ-centered, let that way of considering your relationships and the world around you 
share that in common. And see, if that's our approach to thinking, then where's the room for petty bickering or rivalry or bending the truth or competitiveness? We have to remember, Paul is writing to a broken community in a lot of ways. Uh, He begins in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says this in chapter 1, is Christ divided? It's a rhetorical question. And of course, the answer is, well, no, Christ isn't divided. And then his point is this, so why are you divided? Why would the body of Christ be divided in the way you are? So strive for full restoration. It's going to take real effort. Sometimes it takes time and extra help and lots of prayer. And working through disagreements and fallout, man, that can be painful and difficult. It will require the grace of God. It (laughs) certainly does for me. But Paul says that's central to the world of being God's people. And more, this is central to our mission as God's people. I'm going to invite my friends Dan and Becky uh, to come and share, just to illustrate this a little bit more about the impact. And I've asked them, I've prepped them ahead of time, and they're going to speak about, well, what God is doing in Ukraine um, and how community is a really significant portion of forming them together as a people and the mission that God is calling them into. So I'm going to ask Becky, why don't you go ahead? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to say thanks so much for your prayers um, as I've been in Ukraine and as Dan's been there. Uh, we just really appreciate that you keep us holding us up in prayer. Um, when I left in the fall, I told you I wanted to go and join the work that God was doing there. And that's what I've been able to do, which has been amazing. Uh, the whole focus of eWay is actually built on community and it's not even just the way we teach our classes um checking in with people who don't show up for class and make sure they're okay um or inviting them to do other things with us but it's also through our home groups and through our saturday night speak ups through english clubs everything that we do we want to be doing life together and showing jesus to them um i want to share a story about one young lady, uh, I asked her if I could share her story a little bit with you today. Her name's Oksana. Um, she came to our October English Without Limits, which was the same kind of thing that uh, Dave, Eric, and I went uh, to do in March. Uh, she came for uh, the whole week um, to classes where we had English grammar and discussion classes, but our discussions were based on the book of Luke and looking at who Jesus is and what roles that he um, was showing there. Um, Things like Jesus as our healer, as our teacher, and as our redeemer. Um, Oksana just dove into those discussions and was really wrestling with everything. And at the end of the week, she decided to make Jesus her Lord and Savior. Um, And we were really stoked about this. Um, But it didn't stop there. She came to uh, Blagadot Church, which is the church we're under over there, um, on Sunday. And Abby connected with her and went out for coffee with her, invited her to her home group. Um, and she started coming to that as well. Um, in this home group, we've had games nights and discussions. And um, she would just be there soaking everything up uh, and enjoying being part of this new family that she found. Um, one of the other girls in that home group, uh, she had decided to be baptized, and um, she 
asked us if we would want to come and support her. And we were like, of course, we're your family. We're going to be there. Um, and Oksana said, hey, I want to come too. I want to see what this is all about. Uh, at the end of um, this young lady's baptism service, she said, Oksana told me, she's like, hey, would you come with me and talk to the pastor next week? I want to talk to him about being baptized myself. Um, so I said, obviously, of course, absolutely, that's my pleasure. Um, but it was just so encouraging to see how um, in, it changed the life of one person, just her experience of coming into the community that Iwe is and doing life together with us and how each believer is sharpening one another um, and encouraging one another. And there's so many more people like that. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Dan. He's going to talk a little bit about our in, the English club at the university and how that's impacted Iwe and stuff. So, Thanks. Um, like Becky said, they, Dave and, and Becky were there last um, March. And um, at that time, we did a prayer walk in our city, and we were standing beside the university. And I said to Dave and Beck, I said, pray that God somehow gets us onto this campus, that we'll be allowed to to build relationships with the students here on the campus. And interesting thing was about a week and a half, probably, or two weeks later, um, a girl calls me from the university and says, Hey, um, I, I heard about you and I, I was at English Without Limits and, and would you mind maybe coming and being part of our, um, English speaking club on the campus? And I said, I would love to do that. And so we had an opportunity to go and, um, just begin to build relationships with all of these students. There's about 40 plus students usually every, uh, week that show up. And as a result of that, we now have about a dozen of them coming to Eway, either enrolled in classes or, or just coming to speak up on Saturday night. But they're seeing something different. And because of that, they're, they're coming and they're being part of what, what Eway is doing. And Becky said, you know, Eway is doing community. Eway is a family, is really what it is. And it's just like the church, the family of God. And it's very important that we are there for one another. It's very important that we see one another as family. I was just inspired by this text, John chapter 13, uh, verse 35. It says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Becky and I have an opportunity to invite people in to our world. But sometimes it means you going to theirs first means you walking along with them in their lives for a while. But it's a beautiful thing to watch God transform people's lives just by being part of a community where they see love being made manifest. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much, you guys. Let's, let's just put our hands together. Thank you guys so much for sharing. So that text that you read, Dan, uh, that's actually... Session five, I believe. We'll look at that one because it is so key for who we are and what it means to be a part of the mission of God. Uh, and in fact, you know, Jesus, here's what Jesus prays for all of his followers, his future followers, which means this is what Jesus prayed for you and for me. Let me read this for you. This is his desire for us as a community. I also pray for all of those who will believe in me through their message, their message being the apostles 
what they wrote down in the Gospels, that all of them will be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Here Jesus is revealing the mystery of the Trinity, that although Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father are distinct, they are actually, he can say there are one. We are one. There is a unity of action and purpose and essence or godness, we might say. And Jesus says in some sort of way that we too would experience that deep sense of unity and purpose with one another. That we would be united somehow like that. And then he says this, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are being shaped to look more and more like Jesus in our character and that's happening through community. And somehow Jesus is saying the quality of our community is actually going to be a pointer to others. That the world will come and they'll pay attention and they'll notice and say Jesus is king. So thank you guys for sharing about how God is working through mission, through the community. And then there's one last part I left out. It's the weird part. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, Now, Paul gives them and us this incredibly practical word that's to set the tone for how we interact as a people. Now, I didn't know this before I came upon it in my research this week. I just assumed that Mediterranean cultures have always just shared this kiss, you know, on the cheeks. You think of Italy or or, um, some of those areas along the Mediterranean, Greece, that kind of thing, where they just kiss each other on both cheeks and carry on with life. I thought that was just already there. It wasn't. It wasn't until Paul wrote this. Uh, Here's what one scholar says. Paul was the first popular ethical teacher known to instruct members of a mixed social group to greet each other with a kiss. Thus, the holy kiss is a public declaration of the affirmation of faith that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, as Paul goes on to say, and that's from Galatians 3. We are all one in Christ. So this kiss that you see people practicing in Mediterranean cultures was actually initiated from this very text, from the reality of the gospel, that when it gets a hold of a community, we can no longer kind of keep people at arm's length or to say, well, you're not really my sort of person, sorry. Or I'm, you know, I'm a, we come from different social classes, so we really shouldn't interact like this. No, Paul says through the gospel, there is this great leveling. And the kind of community that we are to be is to be this, to look like that sort of loving Embrace. Now, please don't kiss anyone as you leave here, unless it's your wife or someone like that. The point being, however, is that the way that we greet each other and interact is to be marked by affection and care and warmth. And I think that's been typical of Summit, but I want to see it continue so. So let this text, let's soak in this text and what it means for us, what this good news means for us. See, to make us his own together, this is the glory of what God has done. This is why we would strive for full restoration, why we would encourage each other, live in peace, be of the same mind. It's why we would be affectionate 
when we gather, and ultimately why we rejoice. For we are bound up in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, that interconnectedness we receive through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're celebrating now as we come to the table. You see, this table is telling us the most beautiful story ever, the true story of God's love. I'm going to invite those who are going to help me serve communion, and the worship team are going to come forward. I read to you from 1 John chapter 4. And John will go on to say this, that to speak of love, you actually have to tell a story about the God of love. And here's how it works. He says this, that God is love and that God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to be an atoning sacrifice so that we can be in connection with God and each other. An atoning sacrifice means his life would break to pay the debt of my sin and yours. He did it for you and I out of love because he wanted to rebuild that connection, that communion that we were made for. He, he desires it to the point of letting his own life break. And so as we come to the table, we're saying this is our story now. Not just my story. It is mine, but it's ours as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That through the cross, through your death in our place, you make it possible for the reestablishment of community with you and with each other. And so, Lord, we celebrate that today. And we want to take your life into us that this symbol of broken bread and the cup that's been poured out, God, we take that into us and we let that reshape our lives and how we function together. And we give you praise for it. Amen.